The founding father of Heritage Real Estate, George Butcher, has a few tales to tell. And in fact, he has so many tales, we've decided to turn his podcast into a two-part series. We discuss everything from fleeing Burma as a newborn baby due to the rebellion coming and almost dying and having a dead body in a room next door while he's doing an appraisal. I mean, how do you cut that stuff out? So hence the two-part series. We hope you enjoy part one. Here's George. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to start at the beginning and work our way up. Am I allowed (laughs) to ask you how old you are? Yeah, you can. How old are you, 74. George? 74. So, what year were you born? 1947. Okay. And are you a lo- did you were you born and bred coast? Did you grow up in Sydney? Where did you grow up and spend your earlier years? I was born in Burma and uh, we had to evacuate Burma because there was a rebellion there. So, uh, we had my grandparents, I was only a baby then, had mm. to walk out with what they could carry. They were a very good, well-to-do family mm-hmm. and to walk away, f- just taking what you could carry was a big call. From there... Uh, so when you left Burma, sorry, it was your grandparents, your parents and your siblings or...? Yeah, okay. grandparents and my dad and mum. And, yep. And they went to India where my mum was born originally and then from what I can gather, they went over to England and stayed with my mum's parents over in England. Then we moved out to Australia because my granddad's parents came out and lived in Sydney, Penshurst actually, mm-hmm. and stayed there with them. We, we came out and shipped. And, uh, yeah, so we came out and we, we eventually got here and stayed with them and uh, just stayed there for a little while. So how old were you when you arrived in Australia? As About a, three. So you'd done a, obviously a lot of travel before three to get to where you were. Yeah. Had, had, had you spoken to your mum about what it was like in that time and, and having a, a young child and moving country to country? Unfortunately, uh, when we came to Australia, Dad got a job up in New Guinea as a manager of a cocoa plantation. So he went up previous to mum and myself and when I was about five and a half, six, we went up to New Guinea to meet up with him and mum had a little, another, the other sister. And uh, unfortunately, while we were up there, when I was seven, mum died. Okay. So dad had to bring us back from New Guinea back here. We stayed with my grandparents and dad had to go and finish off his contract up in New Guinea. Mm. He came back oh, three, three years later and... Uh, uh, from there, he decided to buy a, a block of land in Smithfield and uh, organised to get a house built and then he decided to go and get married again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so I haven't really had what I call a family. Yeah, okay. So during that time, did you see your dad in those three years? No. No, Wow. Yeah, once he brought us back to my grandparents, my grandparents raised us. Uh, I'd probably say I wasn't the perfect little child. I was always up to mischief. Yeah. And uh, I think I was what you call an outcast. And uh, Dad's brother, um, who I got on very well with, 
he tried to adopt me. Mm. While Dad was in New Guinea and Dad wouldn't agree to it, so we stayed with my grandparents because they could see my grandparents were over strict with me. Mm. But I probably deserved it, but, you know, in those days, you know, you probably look for attention mm. and, yeah, you know, but... Yeah, some of the things I did in my childhood were were good, you know, but uh, a lot of things I think it was by myself. Yeah. Uh, my grandfather was very, very strict, very strict. Mm. And uh, he never said a lot. Like, my, my pictures of my grandfather, he used to get home 5.30 on the dot mm. every day. And... As soon as he walked in the door, like they had a big house, we were at the other end of the house and we weren't allowed to make a noise. As soon as he walked in, he used to go to his bedroom and my grandmother made a, gave him a glass of sherry or rum or whatever it was. And um, my grandmother's sister lived with them, so she looked after us a bit there and we used to get tea about oh, 6.30 Five to seven, my grandfather used to walk through and he'd go, <clears throat> as he walked through. From there on, you did not speak. As young as we were, as young as I was, you did not speak because you got no trouble. Yeah, so this would have been like early, I'm sorry, like mid-50s probably. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, it sounds at times like it's a hard thing to come up with, but they had rules and regulations and very strict, like on weekends, you know, I wasn't allowed to go and play with my mates and all that until I weeded a certain section of a garden mm. and it had that penny weeding, you know, with the bulbs in the bottom. Oh, yeah. So I used to be a bit of a smarty and pull the heads off everything <laughs> and so I finished and he used to come, my grandfather come along with a shovel, dig it up and he'd find it and he'd give me another patch to go with it. Oh, so no. it was a never-ending challenge, but... He was very much, when you did something really wrong, he'd take you in the bedroom, yeah, down with the dax and cane yep. and whack. Or a belt or... No, he didn't need the no, belt, he had a cane. Okay. And he used the cane all the time. So. Yeah, right. So he was pretty strong in the right arm because he, he got used to giving me that. But mm. he, look, in his own way, that's the way he was. It was just a different era back then and well, that's, that's the way it was. Yeah. And look... Today, he'd be put in jail for doing the same thing because mm. that'd be child abuse. But in those days, you just copped it. And that, that mm. was a way of life. And uh, if you did something wrong, you knew you were going to get caught and punished. So, yeah. but so tell me about moving up to the Central Coast and how did you come to live here? Uh, moving to the Central Coast, well, uh, when we go back to when Dad was... Um, then when we were in Smithfield and we built the house... Dad decided he was going to go back up to New Guinea. So I was 14 and I was doing my intermediate certificate. So uh, he gave he, he had some acquaintances and organised for me to go and live with them. And they shot up to New Guinea and I finished you know, um, intermediate. And Is that like the equivalent of year nine now? Like yeah. That, yep. Yeah. So I finished that and uh, organised for me to go up to New Guinea. So uh, 
what, I'm 14 and on a plane by myself and went That's up a big there. deal. Mm. Like back then, because, you know, travel yeah. wasn't like it is now. No. Yeah, so it was a big deal. So went up there and um, spent six weeks with him and he wanted me to come back and do an apprenticeship. And I didn't want to come back. I wanted to stay there. I want to be a patrolman up there, a yeah, cadet patrolman. And he said, no, uh, you're going back and you're going to do an apprenticeship, which as much as I protested, you know, I, I really wanted to finally have a family life. Mm. And that didn't come about. So back I came and stayed with these people I stayed with before. And, uh, you know, it was an experience there, you know, and look, I got me a you know, going out to get an apprenticeship and not having someone to call on, you know, what to do and how to do it and all that type of thing. You know, I virtually went door knocking these different factories and one of the things that was a bit against me was because I went and had that six weeks up in New Guinea, I've come back. Most of the jobs after school, people have gone and got their jobs, so I finished up not been able to walk into mm. a job as easy as you can so I did uh, a lot of door knocking or factory knocking as mm. you call it and uh, finished up getting myself a job as a boilermaker, apprentice boilermaker and uh, yeah I did that and uh, I probably was adopted by some of the guys because it was only a small factory and I was the first apprentice they had there mm. so uh they, they treated me like a brother more than anything mm. like that. And, uh, yeah, it, it's very hard to turn around and say, I enjoyed my life, you know, as far as... Mm. But they were good to me. And you're doing a man's job as yeah, a kid. Yeah. Like, you're 15 years old. Yeah. Yeah, and you're working like a man. Yeah. But the people I live with, uh, he was very nice. The father was very nice. And he trained greyhounds. And part of the thing I had to do was when I lived with them, I had to walk the dogs. And if they went to the racetracks on weekend, I had to be involved, even, even though they had three boys and a girl themselves. When I come along, it was like I took the place of doing that. Mm. You know, they, the kids felt like they'd been given a lifeline, so they bailed out as much <laughs> as they could. But... He was always good to me. Mm. You know, I called him Uncle Roy in the end. But, mm. uh, you know, uh, when I got a little bit older and uh, come out of my apprenticeship, I um, sort of moved on a little bit from there and mm. uh, went to a couple of other places. And um, then along the way, I finished up one of the guys that taught me my apprenticeship. He was working out at Seven Hills Blackdown Way and he asked me, do I want a job? Because he, he was the one that trained me through my apprenticeship. So that was you know, a bit of a boost and everything like that. So I went and worked with him for a couple of years until... And it was, it was a big factory, but he was a boiler maker. I was a boiler maker. There was a fitter. Then the bloke that owned the business and his wife... And he finished up dying of a heart attack. So they started to cut down on, um, you know, even though we had a small team, she didn't want to run a, mm. a business. So uh, I got another job with someone else 
that I did my apprenticeship with. Yeah. And they were a two-man team and uh, they asked me if I would come and work with them. Well, I was, they were both fitters and I was a boiler maker, so, yeah, I jumped on board with that. And uh, in between there was a lot of growing up to do, mm. you know, a lot of growing up. But uh, while I was there, uh, I worked with them for a couple of years and I had a major accident where uh, I was making this furnace door and it wasn't a factory, it was at, like they had a, a like a big shed mm. but uh, this furnace door, we stood it up on the end to fin- I was finishing it off, it came adrift off the crane and I was underneath it and it smashed me, smashed my head in. And so how old are you when this is happening? 19, no, no, it was 20, 21. So, yeah, I had the head smashed in, uh, got a cracked shoulder, I buggered my knee, and when, when I got... I was lucky it was done outside in the yard because there was a bit of a hollow in the yard and I got pushed into that hollow. Mm. So when the actual furnace door was on top of me, I was put in this little hollow and uh, I could hear him say, he's dead, because it was three tonne on top of me. Then when they went to lift it, they were squashing me because they couldn't oh. pick it up in one go. So It had to lean on yeah, you. Yeah. they What they finished up doing was chocking this uh, 12 by 12 foot uh, furnace door until they could get it high enough that they could pick it up on one end. And there was a lot of blood and stuff everywhere and they... Uh, took me, or he, the boss took me straight, threw me in his car and took me straight to hospital because they didn't think there was time for an ambulance to come and all that, so they took me to hospital. Now, I, there again, I didn't have family. So uh, I was living with another mate and his mother and sister, so I lived with them. And uh, Dad, by then, was up in Townsville. They moved to Townsville and... And even there, he didn't come down to see how I was in hospital. So, yeah, but... And how long are you in hospital for? About four weeks. And I had to go back again for uh, for my knee. But, uh, you know, the part that hurt probably the most out of all of it is you, you get compensation while you're going like... But in those days, you've got a third-year wage that you were earning, so... I still had to pay for my car, I still had to pay board and not being a great saver, you know, times were starting to get really tough, you know. Mm. And uh, So, you know, that part was hard, you know, because if you had your parents, you could say, well, I'm sponging on you, but there was nobody there. So mm. although the, the people, the lady I lived with and her son and that, she was very good and, you know, waited for when the money came through which, again, virtually didn't cover my car payments and, yeah. and board. So. But, you know, I'm still here. So. Yeah. So how soon after that accident did you meet your lovely wife, Trish? Uh, probably two or three years. Yep. Yeah. We, um, Where'd you meet Trish? Well, living with these people, their daughter started playing netball and uh, she said... Uh, 
how'd you like to coach a netball team? I said, I go to bakery. I said, I don't know anything about netball. She said, look, they're a very good netball team, except they're all bosses because they never had a coach. You know? yeah. And every time someone would suggest something, everyone would not do it. So I, she convinced me to go down. So I went down and I sat way away from where they were training and I thought, they can catch, they can throw, they can shoot for goals, you know, but they've got no discipline. So they mm. played their first game. Uh, not I wasn't involved with that. That's when they came and asked me. Mm. And uh, they got flogged anyway. So I'm watching and I'm thinking, you know, if they didn't say where they wanted to play and, and this, they could possibly be a good team. All they needed was structure. That's mm. all they needed. So I finished up taking it on. And uh, from there on, we went through the season undefeated after that, which wow. was, you know, and they were they were a brilliant side. So Trisha's on this team? Yeah, she yep. was captain. What what position was she? Uh, wing attack. Okay. And uh, she was a rebel. When, when we used to do training, you know, in those day, days you did a bit of fitness. Well, every time she had to do running, she'd be the one that's coming last. So in the end, I'd get behind and keep shoving her and she'd say touch me again and I'll drop you <laughs> this is why I love Trish yeah anyway so yeah that went on and uh, we decided to go out one night which came from left field mm-hmm. and uh, things went from there yeah and then is that when you moved up to the coast yeah what had happened uh, we had a uh, Matt came along and uh, Trisha's parents were up here. So we came up for Christmas and I said, gee, I love it up here, you know, because we were living in a flat in Fairfield. And she said, why do you, why do we have to go back? And I said, well, that's where my job is. Anyway, I went around to some factories at North Warren and went in there and asked if they had a position vacant, they said, one of the bosses said, yeah, I've got one. When can you start tomorrow? And I said, no. I said, I've got to go back. I've got to give notice at the flat. I've got to give notice where I'm working. I said, I would not do that, you know. He said, oh, we haven't got a position if you can't start straight away. I said, oh, well. Anyway, he had all my details. So he finished up calling around to Trisha's parents' place that afternoon. And he said do you still want that job? And I said, I can't start. You know, you want me straight away. He said, how about you go back, give notice, do it all and come up and you've got a position here when you come up. So that's what we did. Yeah, right. But when we moved up, uh, we had to move into Trisha's parents' uh, garage, which was done up like a granny flat. That's where we lived for a few months before we, we got a rental of our own. So, yeah. Where was the first time you ever bought what suburb? A what? What was the first home you ever bought? What what suburb was it in? Oh, Gorican. Yeah. Oh. We... <laughs> and this you had to, a, this you is have... a never-ending story, this one. Mm. We tried to buy a house, but the market was pretty hot. So just time. to get... It's sort of late 70s? Uh, yeah. So Matt, yeah. you got Matt and Darren, yep. two youngsters, yep. and it's late 70s. Yep. So uh, we tried to buy a house and... Yeah, you know, virtually the first thing the agent said is how much deposit you got and 
they said, you haven't got enough, go away and come back. And uh, then the market crashed absolutely big time. And uh, one of the guys that actually had me name, he rang me, he said, you still got that deposit? And I said, yeah, but it's not enough. He said, uh, we might be able to do something. And I said, how are you going to do something when everyone's told me to rack off, you know? And he said, look, we, we'll try to do do something. So we finished up sitting down. We found a house in Dudley Street. Unfortunately, the tenant in there wouldn't let us in. So he sketched out uh, a floor plan of it and everything like that. And uh, uh, what happened, to borrow money banks would only allocate X amount per month. So when that money was allocated out, you had to wait till the following month. Now, there was very little chance you were going to get gazumped because nobody could get money. Mm. So here we are. We sat there for a couple of months and um, eventually the tenant got thrown out and uh, the lending authority said... We'll lend you money, but we're not lending it to you while the house is in this condition. That was trashed. Outside, uh, in those days, you drank KB cans. Well, we got a, a ute and a half full of KB cans we had to get rid of. Well, they just threw them on the lawn when they finished drinking. Yeah, they had a pile that if you were left underneath it, they'd never know you were there. That, that's how high. And the grass was so high. Everything about it. And uh, there was... No guarantees that we were still going to get the loan, uh, the loan, but if we cleaned it up and did all these things, we we would get considered. So we finished up doing it. We the, look, the owner of the property, they were separating, so they were in dire straits to get it sold. But again, we were fortunate that you know, money wasn't really available for everybody. Mm. So, you know, that's how we bought our first yeah, right. house. Got into the market. Yeah, so that's how we got our first house. And So you're still working as a boilermaker. You've bought a place in Dudley Street in Gorican. How how did Heritage come about, Heritage Real Estate? Oh, can I go back a little bit? Yeah, sure. While, while I was working as a boilermaker, would you believe the first week I came up and started the job, I've walked in, never been on strike in my life, and I've walked in and next thing, we're out. Nine o'clock in the morning, we're all going home. And uh, it was over, we are going through a bit of a heat wave, so they wanted a cold water bubbler and salt tablets. Well, the management told them to go to hell, so out we'd go. So I've, I've, I've gone home, Trish said, don't tell me you got the sack already. Like, this is probably 9.30, I'm home. Mm. I said, no, we're out on strike. Never been on strike in my life, never knew you know, the, te- the technicalities are why you go. And this went on for two weeks. And you don't get paid if you strike. No. So we'd walk in and, like, all of a sudden, I'm in dire straits, you know, I'm thinking, where am I going to get the money? We're living with the in-laws. Mm-hmm. But so I went and got a job at Wine Loose Club, uh, started up at the bottom and gradually worked my, my way up over a period of time. So um, that's... There and then, while I was working at the club, one of the directors who was also manager of uh, a real estate in Gorrigan, I said to him, "I want to get in real estate." 
He said, no, got no positions, got no positions. Anyway, we decided we're going to go to Queensland uh, after a couple of years. So we put the house on the market, we got a buyer, and this guy that was the supervisor up the club, he said, do you still want to get in real estate? And I said, I'd love to. And he said, well, I can give you a start. I said, you know, the only problem is you, your company has just got a sale on my house. That means... You lose a sale and you get a salesman. He said, well, we'll put up with that, won't we? So <laughs> I finished up starting with Dennis. I call him Dennis S. That'll mm. Anyway, so, yeah, I worked with him for a number of years, number of years. And, um, yeah, so we sort of moved on and there was a couple of things went on. So I moved to another, another company and uh, I rang him. Actually, that's when the Express... Advocate used to, or the advocate used to be out, and I saw this ad, and I debated on debating. Should I ring? Should I not? Should I ring? So I rang about four o'clock, and the manager of this other real estate, and I said, "Look, uh, I want to talk to you about it, but if you got someone, I won't waste your time." But because uh, he'd named me from doing real estate, mm. and he said, "I have got someone picked out." I said, "Look." No, no hard feelings. That yeah, you know, I, I don't even know whether I really want to leave here or not. Mm-hmm. So he told me to come down after hours. So I came down after I finished, and uh, it was probably the easiest interview I'd ever done. He said, uh, "I know all I know about you. What do you want to know? What do you want from us?" And I said, "Sunday off." I said, "I've worked Saturdays and Sundays." Because where I was before, they used to have footballers and they used to have Sundays off so they could play footy. So I worked every Sunday. I said, I want Sundays off to be with my family. He said, not a problem. And uh, I finished up starting with him. And after a a year or so, he made me uh, sales manager. And then uh, we kept on going. And one day I was doing the letterbox drops up in uh, Lake Haven and uh, my ex-boss was driving past and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm doing my letterbox drops. And we had a chat and everything, you know. And I said to him, if you ever want to sell, let me know. He said, I'm never going to sell. He said, George, why would I sell? I said, I'm just telling you. if you Sell want the real estate, like sell the yeah. business, yeah. If you want to sell, let me know. Probably 18 months later, he rang me and he said, you're still interested? I said, yeah. He said, all right, what about we talk about it? So I went down and he had a number of issues in being able to sell it. So it was never going to be an easy transaction. So anyway, uh, I finished up agreeing to it. So I went back to the boss I was working for. I said, look. This is probably a 50% chance of coming off, but I don't want you hearing things behind the scene that I'm doing this against you or that against you. I said, um, if it comes off, I want to have a go, but if it doesn't, I'll be staying here. So, And I was fortunate he didn't put me off, you know. But at that time, it was a toss of the coin whether it was going to eventually. Anyway, uh, after we got a few things nutted out and everything like that 
I did a lot of planning and projections of how I could see a business going. My biggest thing was, throughout the years in real estate, I always watched other agents and I don't always believe they had their vendors and purchasers in their hearts. A lot of them, and even today I'll see different people, that they look at people with a dollar sign in their eyes rather than realising they're playing with someone's life and you look after them and it will come back one day and look after you, you know. And I thought to myself, I, I want to run a business the way I want to run a business, not being told mm. that this is the way it's going to go. So we finished up doing that. And, uh, yeah, so in planning we had to do projections. We had to borrow money for, to do it and our organised signs and everything like this. And so it worked out... Uh, I was putting on a receptionist who was going to be a property manager come whatever. Uh, I asked Darren to come on board with us. So how old are the boys at this time? Are they? Darren's about 20. Yeah. 20, yeah, about 20. And uh, so he went to... He was working in real estate up the road where I originally started and he went up to the boss up there and said, you know, Dad's opening down the road. He said, I know everything about it. Mm -hmm. And Taryn said, I'd like to go and work for him. He said, you go and work for your dad. He said, he'll teach you more in real estate than I will. So uh, so Darren finished up coming on board with us and we opened up. And so the three of us started Heritage Real Estate. And uh, as well as I did my projections and had it, everything in place. I had so many projections, so many different things. Mm. Our first month was hell. Mm. And we had so many speed humps along the way, which we won't go into, but it was probably enough to turn around and say, you know, I've had enough of this. Yeah. And at the end of the month, uh, sat down with Darren and Trish and myself and burst into tears and I said, what have I done to my family? Because where I was working before, I was earning good money. Mm -hmm. I was getting good commissions and everything. And I've gone and started my own business and it's the first month I haven't been able to get it across the line. I thought, what have I done wrong? I've done nothing wrong. I've, you know, everything seems to be in place. So several ideas and everything we threw in the bin. We said, right, we're starting from scratch again. And uh, by then, people were starting to realise that we actually had taken over the business. Well, mm. it was like a whole heap of people had put a sign out there, bring your friends and everything into here. We, when we started the business, Darren and I, we were getting there at 7.30 in the morning and sometimes leaving 8 and 9 o'clock at night. And... We had so much work to do out in the field, you know, with drops and this and that and seeing people on this. And of the night time we do the paperwork when mm. we had time to do it. So that that was a good way of being able to... And the second second month when everyone kept coming in, uh, we're thinking, yeah, what's going on? You know, all of a sudden we've had nobody really mm. and everyone's coming across, you know. So uh, it was good, you know. But we got, you know, working seven days a week. The only time Darren had off was go and play soccer. And other than that, you know, he was always there. You know, he was working the long hours and, 
you know, and it was taking a toll because, you know, there's only so much you can do and you wouldn't go to sleep because I'm thinking, you know, what else can we do? What else can we do? Anyway, uh, I turned around to Trish and I said, look, you know, we just can't go get on with this. We've got to put someone on. And she said, you can't put anyone on. We've got no money because if you sell something today, you don't get paid for, you know, Six weeks. Oh, eight six, weeks. eight weeks, whatever, you know. And Trish was our breadwinner. Trish used to work at St George and uh, she used to bring in the wages to keep us eating and paying the bills and everything like that. So uh, I said, what are we going to do? We've got to do something. So she quit her job and came and worked for us. So Trish was there. Uh, our receptionist was there. And Trish filled in when... We weren't there, you know, mm. like when we were out and doing things. Uh, the receptionist we had was unbelievable. How long did it take from that first month where there's just crickets, nothing's happening, it's just you and Darren and and uh, to the point where you started having plenty on the books, a few staff, how, how long did that take? It probably took another three or four months mm-hmm. and I said to Trish, we're still getting snowed under. You can't handle it, we can't handle it. We've got to put more on. And she played the thing because she looked after the accounts. George, it's, we're not in a position to do it. I said, we've got to do it. We've got no choice. So I interviewed and we, we got some good applications, to be honest with you. Mm. Anyway, I came back and I said to her, guess what? She said, what? I said, I just put two on, not one. She went over the top. She said, you're kidding. I said, no, could not split them. Uh, One was Ron Anderson, who the awards on. Ron was very much like me. Yeah. You know, he cared about the people and Mm. things like that. And, yeah, we sort of gelled very well. The other one was Trisha's ex-boss, believe it or not. He was in St George and he did accounts, you know, managing money and all and I said, I see the benefit of him and the two of them being on. Well, we kicked goals with it. Yeah, it it worked out very well. Uh, one of the things, when Darren and I were there, on a weekend, we Tom Hughes used to be across the road. They had three of the biggest offices on the Central Coast. And people would drive in there on a weekend but not cross the road to us. And we'd be there saying... Here we We're are. Here. Hello. Yeah, come, come across the road. Come. <laughs> and they wouldn't do it. And that used to annoy the hell out of us, you know, because there was nothing we could do except stand in their driveway and push them across the yeah. road. Anyway, as time went on and we started to grow a bit bigger and a bit bigger, you know, uh, sat down with Darren and Trish and I said, you know what I want to do? I want to buy across the road. You got Buckley's jeans. Yeah, you know, because... Why would Tom Hughes sell his biggest real estate uh, to me? Anyway, so I decided... Sorry, sell the business? Business and... As in the building or the business? The whole thing. The whole thing. Yeah. The freehold, the leasehold, yeah. the business. Yeah. Yep. Well, I realised when I negotiated about buying that side and rent, and I realised that there could be too many hassles there, so I decided we'd go all out for the whole lot. So... Uh, had a meeting with him, and you know, he said, George, why, why would I sell 
I've got the best three offices on the Central Coast. Why would I sell? And uh, I said, Tom, you're good at building. I'm good at real estate. Anyway, it took a while and probably the hardest negotiating I think I ever done. But, you know, because he didn't have to sell. Mm. That was the biggest thing. He did, you know, why would you sell the best real estates? Yeah. You know, and he said, you want the other two? And I said, no, I don't want this one. You can keep the other two. I'll keep this one. So we finished up getting it and uh, uh, we took on his staff and unfortunately staff didn't like the way we were going to operate mm. and one by one they left, which was a blessing in disguise, really. Good stuff, Bruce. So I told you it was interesting. That was part one. If you want to hear the rest of it stay tuned it'll be dropping next wednesday wherever you get your podcast part one was produced by kieran christie hosted by me carly eldridge and brought to you by heritage media heritage media